Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you have found him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. Well, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words and open our hearts. I pray for each and every person here right now. Spirit of God, would you come and would you draw us more fully into a relationship with you that is personal and alive, that beats with your heart, that moves by the impulse of your will. Individually and as a group, we pray. We come to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. My guess is almost all of you this morning have heard something about the three wise men from afar. The story about a band of men coming from the east, bearing gifts for the newborn king, the baby Jesus. Tradition has actually called them kings, and then when we look at our plays, we also see them often with little crowns on their head. And these uh, three wise guys really was what they were. Brilliant, more like scientists than they really were kings. Brought three gifts, and the reason we think three is because there were three gifts, and so we kind of assume there were three. These kings are named Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. That's a mouthful. And as really king, priest, wise men, enchanters, magicians, magi, whatever, they came to pay homage to the king of kings. Well, this morning, any of you heard of Paul Harvey? You know how he kind of says, and now the rest of the story? I remember one time I was in a car with my dad and I heard the thing come on and I said, well, that's an interesting one. He goes, you know, I met Paul Harvey. And I said, oh, really? And I didn't ask him anything about it. And about a year or two ago, 
He came up again and I said, really, when did you meet him? And he said, well, you know, I got a phone call as the president of Trinity Seminary down in Chicago area. And I think he, Paul Harvey, lives in Oak Park or something like that. And he, he had met him and then Paul Harvey called my father's administrative assistant or his assistant called my, whatever, how that works. And he said, you know, I'd like for you and your wife to come for a small dinner party. And so he thought that would be good. And so they had arranged it. And it was around close to the Christmas holiday time. And so he shows up at Paul Harvey's house. And here he walks in. And there's the president of Wheaton College and his wife. And then there's Paul Harvey and his wife. And the other couple was Billy Graham and Billy and Ruth Graham. And my dad said, what a great experience. He shared a little bit about that time that he had with him. And, and it was kind of cool because I got the story behind the story. And I heard about that, and, I, and I, so I'd recognize and listen a little bit more when Paul Harvey would come on. Well, what I kind of want to do this morning is I'm hoping to give you kind of the story behind the story, kind of the Paul Harvey thing, so that when we get to the end of this, you kind of go with regard to the wise man, oh, and then I can go, and now you've heard you know, the rest of the story. It was a clear, crisp October night. Gaspar was examining the sky. His enthusiasm for watching the heavens was matched only by the enthusiasm of children gazing at their presents under the Christmas tree. Every starry night for Gaspar was like a new present waiting to be opened. He loved watching and recording the movements of the heavens. You know, some people look forward to to reading the paper or picking up a good novel. Gaspar looked forward to reading the heavens. Nothing compared to the wide expanse of a desert sky on a clear night. Gaspar loved his work and felt it a privilege to have landed a job at the most renowned astronomical observatories in that world in that day. You see, Gaspar lived in Sippar, Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia actually means, it's two words, Mesopotamia, Meso and Potamia, between rivers, or meaning between the Tigris and Euphrates River, that, that pocket of land there, which is considered often as the cradle of civilization of the Mideast. And Sippar was an ancient city in the northern part of what is modern-day Iraq. You can see the big arrow there. Around the birth of Christ, Sippar was a very important city. It was a university town, kind of really like the MIT of astronomy. An astronomical observatory was built there some 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, and through that time had grown to be one of great renown. And that whole area had numbers of schools. This was no fly-by-night diploma mill that Gaspar was a part of. It was kind of like the Cambridge or Harvard or Oxford of his day. In fact, archaeologists have found these ancient scientists had actually kept exhaustive records in these different schools. Every day they recorded the movements of the sun and the moon, particularly of the wanderers, is what they called them, really planets that could be seen to move against the background of fixed stars. Well, Gaspar was a stargazer by profession and heavenly-minded by passion. These stargazers kept careful watch of the night sky and kept meticulous, precise records. For example, they knew the planet Venus had phases like the moon, which wax and wanes. This can barely be detected and only by the best of eyes in the rarest of conditions. Not only did they know about the waxing and waning of Venus, but even more puzzling to modern day scientists is that they knew that Saturn actually had rings. 
See, modern-day astronomers have always assumed that rings could not be seen with the unaided eye. Modern-day astronomy did not dream of such arrangements on Saturn until telescopes were actually invented. But they were amazed. They've been amazed at the records that they find from these scientists who had come to a point where they could see with their own naked eye things that you can only see in their mind by telescopes. These men of Sippar were equivalent of our modern-day astrophysicists, really. They were actually held in similar esteem by their contemporaries. Martinus A. Beek, in his Atlas of Mesopotamia, he explains it like this. In one field where religion, philosophy, and science meet, there is no doubt about our dependence on ancient Mesopotamia, and in that field, astronomy. Although the course of the stars is originally observed, was for the purpose of foretelling the future. Observations in the schools of Erek, Sippar, Babylon, Borsippa, freed itself, catch this, freed itself from this restriction and became a scientific research in the modern sense of the word. His point being this, they got free from the religious, faith-oriented stuff and they said, we are going to just be scientific by what you can observe, what's observable and demonstrable and what you can see. That's what it grew into being. But I think there were some, like Gaspar and a few others, who were still holding on to the fact that these signs actually pointed to a God of the heavens who created it and, and through these stars would make himself known in some way. There were still a few. I think Gaspar was probably one of them. One of the most celebrated, um, Beat goes on to say, one of the most celebrated astronomers was Kidunu of Sippar. He knew the difference between the sidereal, I can't even say it, so, yeah, that year, and the tropical year. He discovered the precession, which is the motion of the equinoxes, and was able to predict solar and actually predict lunar eclipses accurately. Trained from childhood to be an astronomer, as many of his ancestors before had been, Gaspar was from a long line of ancient and wise scientists, priests from the land of Persia. Gaspar gazed out over the night sky, recognizing the many formations as he was watching them, recording them. Like clockwork, they appeared and disappeared and reappeared throughout the year. Gaspar was probably one of those young prodigies just out of school who was given one of those, you know, kind of like uh, in law firms, you give it to, you know, the legal assistants and they do all the kind of busy recording work. Well, he was probably one of those who was doing that. He enjoyed it, but he was doing all that busy work, recording everything. And that night, as Gaspar was recording observations, he recognized something different than the sky. Something unusual, unexpected. What it stood for wasn't clear as he looked up. But one thing was certain. It was important. Nothing like that had occurred before, at least that he was aware of. It had to be a sign of some sort. And so he quickly ran to call his colleague, his superior, who was abed and sleep, letting, you know, the young ones do all the hard work. And you can just see him. He runs in and he says, Mel, Mel. He whispers to wake him up, shaking him. Hurry, get dressed. I found something unusual in the heavens. you got to see it. As they walk to the observatory platform, I can just see Mel. He's rubbing his eyes. He's looking upward. And Gasper's pointing to the sky where it is. And he's kind of looking up. And then finally, he can't really see it clearly, so he's still kind of waking up from sleep. He, he forms his, uh, his hands like they would do, and so he can make this, you know, bring this image in more clearly and more focused. 
Percy Mel enjoyed Gasper's youthful enthusiasm. It reminded him of his own youth. Now it was tarnished with age. Mel looked at things with a bit more reservation. He'd kind of given up on the, the idea of maybe this God in the heavens was going to you know, show himself through the stars. At one point he thought about it. Now he's beginning to think maybe it's just a scientific stuff. Maybe they're right. As Mel continued to stare, Gaspar started drilling him with questions. Now, what do you think? Could it be the sign of the great ruler to come? Do you think this is his star? Don't you remember your class in eastern skies in the future about a star rising in the east that would point to a new realm, a new king, a new kingdom? You know, and Mel's kind of taking it in, looking up. See, Mel was aware of the talk of that day. He was very much a part of it. At one point, he had lost his enthusiasm for it since he had looked and looked and nothing seemed to show up. See, wise men throughout the world were waiting. They were waiting for a supposed prince from, from the God of the heavens to make himself known. In fact, the world was waiting for God to send his own appointed ruler to the earth. There was talk throughout all the lands that a ruler of universal influence would be born around the time of Christ. History records that in Rome, Greece, and throughout Middle East, preceding the time of Christ, there was anticipation that a baby would be born who would be king of kings. Historical and archaeological records showed that people were anticipating that the birth of this baby would be attended by signs in the heavens and throughout the earth. Josephus, in his volume, Jewish Wars, records this. Suetonius in Vespasian IV records this. So does Tacitus in his histories and does Virgil in Echologue. It was known. They were waiting for a king of great influence. In fact, this is what helped, I think, the Caesars of those days, Caesar Augustus and others, to claim that they were God themselves, that they were immortal. Because there was this thought going around that one would be born who would be immortal. And they would push this on the people, but not many of the people believed it until they were actually, their head was on some kind of place of punishment. And then they would confess, say, yes, you're the king, you know, that who is God. Well, Gaspar's excitement unearthed. A deep hidden reservoir of hope in Melchior. He thought it was gone and all of a sudden he begins to go, maybe. Maybe this is it. A hope that had been covered by years of disappointment and disillusionment. So coursing through his mind, Mel begins to think, maybe this is the star of the king. Could it be that after all these years, the hope he had once had, that God would really personally involve himself with his creation? This God of the heavens who made all these stars, could it be that he's arranging to somehow come and, and to rule among us? And he begins to get excited about it. And so determined by his awakening hope, Mel with Gaspar knew that interpreting this sign would be no small task. They knew there was a sign. They had a general idea about it, but they didn't know the kind of background that was necessary. So they knew of no one better versed in ancient oracles than their friend Balthazar. Balthazar, if you think about it for a second, Balthazar, if, if you want to get a picture of what I think he was like, he was kind of like the Indiana Jones of the Middle East, okay? If he didn't know ancient secrets and he wasn't able to find them out and discover them, no one could. So the next morning, Mel and Gasper shared with Balthazar the details of their late night discovery. And Mel begins, last night, Balthazar, around 2 a.m., Gaspar woke me up. And as we stood up on the third tower toward the rock ledge wall, and we saw in the east, and he's going on with all these details, Gaspar can hardly handle it anymore. Impatient, he bursts in. We saw the star of the kings, Balthazar. You know the star pointing to the birth of God's special prince, the one the wise men from all the worlds have been waiting for. 
Well, whether it was exactly a star, a supernova, a configuration of stars, a comet, or some other astronomical entity, it's not clear. Neither Bible scholars nor astronomers are certain exactly what these wise guys saw. Matthew merely tells us they saw his star in the east. Or it can be interpreted this way, they saw his star when it rose. Kepler, the royal mathematician and astronomer of the court of Prague back in 1603, he believed that the star of Bethlehem was a conjunction of Saturn Jupiter in the constellation of Pisces. Can you get that in your mind? See, a conjunction which his chart showed happened every 805 years, which as he went and calculated back, realized that this group of wanderers came together around the year 6 B.C. is what his calculation showed. Pisces was the zodiacal sign of the Mediterranean, so here's the Mediterranean area. Jupiter indicated the formation concerned a king, but not just any king, but the great king of the universe. And he also found that Saturn, according to Kepler's research, was the protecting star of Israel. As Balthazar listened to these excited friends of his, he, he began to rack the shells of his own memory. He faintly remembered once studying an oracle about a star rising from the east. He tried to recall in what manuscript he had read it from and as he's, you know, working down the, the, the hallways of his memory, he feels his tug and Mel's going, Mel's going, what do you think, Balsar? What do you think? And he pulls him back into reality and he goes, hmm, as he rubs his chin. It's a good question. This will require some research, but of this I am sure. I know this from my, my study. A star rising from the east is, is unusually significant. The east indicates a new beginning. A new day is dawning for mankind. And the star, as you have described it, points to one of worldwide import, some kind of ruler ushering in a, a whole new kingdom, a whole new age. And then he says, if, you, if, if what you guys saw proves true and your calculations are reliable and it aligns with some of these old prophetic oracles, we may actually be going on a trip. Well, they got excited about that. They left and Belsazar went his way. He hurried off to Sippar's University Library. And you have to know in these towns where there were these universities, they were collection bases for all the manuscripts that they could get their hands on or copy so that they could do research. So he goes to Sippar's University Library. He sets to work to unlock this heavenly riddle while his two stargazing friends continue to track the growing brightness of the star and its movement. Finally, after hours and hours of researching, missing meals, losing sleep, Balthazar found what he was looking for. In the sacred writings of a people called the Jews, in a religious book titled the Pentateuch, a collection of writing attributed to one of their most famous leaders and prophets, a man called Moses, he actually, Moses, records an oracle. It's recorded in their books about a prophet who wasn't really in Is from Israel, but his name was Balaam of all people, who comes to these people in the midst of, of their travel to move to the land that they were calling the place of promise for them. And so Balthazar, he's excited. He's got these five books of Moses, and in them there's a specific prophecy that points to the fact of this star that his friends are seeing. So he calls his friends together. He says, you guys got to see this. 
He said, I think I found the ancient text that gives the meaning to this star. I've got the secret. According to the writings of Moses in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, says Balthazar, a man named Balaam gave four oracles, which the Jews hold as prophecies of a great king to come, a Messiah. And it reads like this, quote, I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. These oracles, my friends, predict not just an ordinary ruler, but together with some other oracles I have found in these Jewish books, this star points to the king of all kings. And here is the greatest find that I have. I'm not just looking at the books that come from this man named Moses. Guess what, guys? Remember the guy Daniel, the Jewish guy who became second in command under Nebuchadnezzar when Babylon ruled and then when Persia ruled, he continued to rule because he was the chief of all magi. He was the astrophysicist of all times and yet he was the one that set us on this track of the possibility of predicting the future. Well, I was reading through his books. A man called Daniel comes before the king Nebuchadnezzar who has a dream and, and the king asks him to interpret it. And, and it's not just the Jewish books, it's our books. And he begins, he says, Daniel's writings are considered not only sacred to the Jews, but in the writings of Daniel, they're also come here where Daniel interprets the king's dreams. And Belshazzar is excited like I am right now. Daniel told the king that his dream pointed to poor, four powerful earthly kingdoms. Now he doesn't mention, you guys, what these kingdoms are, but if you think about it, you can understand it. The first kingdom is the kingdom of Babylon, which Daniel was a part of. Talking to Nebuchadnezzar, he made that clear. The next one is the kingdom of Persia, our lineage, when we ruled. And then there came, as we all know, the kingdom of Greece, where Alexandria ruled throughout the land. And now we're in this kingdom called Rome, which he talks about as being the fourth kingdom. And he says, during the kingdom of Rome, as it's reigning... A new king and a new kingdom will arise out of it at some point. One that is from the God of the heavens, a king and a kingdom that would rule forever and never end. Not of Rome, but one that would be birthed somewhere. And it sounds like somewhere in Israel. Listen to the very words of Daniel, how he describes it to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he reads these words in Daniel chapter 2. In the time of those kings, the God of the heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of your vision, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2, verse 45. The great God has shown you the king, what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And then in Daniel 2, verse 46, listen to this. He looks at his, his friends, he says, listen to this. The great King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the Napoleon of their day, folks. Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Can you believe that? This is of great significance. Even King Nebuchadnezzar bows and offers him gifts and recognizes that this man, Daniel, this man of, of the Jewish lineage who is serving in our kingdom, this man's God is the God of the universe. And this man, Daniel, goes on later in his book to predict a kingdom that will rise up 
out of Rome. This is exciting. And he goes on. Then King said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of the gods and the Lord of the kings and the revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Balthazar looks at his friends. This star you've seen, it's his star. The ruler, it's the one from the God of the heavens. The faith, this hope that we've had, that all the other scientists here have kind of said no to, it's real. We're taking a trip. And as he says that, he sees on the face of Melon and on the face of Gaspar, they're, not, they're kind of feeling, they're excited, but they're kind of confused. And they say to Balthazar, Balthazar, we've been trying to get a hold of you, but just a few nights ago, we don't see the star anymore. It's gone. And I think their hope is sunk. And Balthazar, who is the Indiana Jones of their day, says, guess what, guys? We're, we're pinning our hopes on that star. And we're heading to Jerusalem, whether you see that star or not. So they get their stuff together. They, make their, they get ready for this expedition. And Balthazar, as he's thinking about going to Jerusalem, is beginning to think in his mind, if this is true, can you imagine the excitement that will be in the land of Israel? When I come to Jerusalem, can you imagine how excited the priests of that group of people will be when I tell them about the star and about the fulfillment of these prophecies? He's thinking in his mind, this will be one of the greatest days ever. He's seeing himself get the acceptance speech for the Solomonic Prize, which is the Nobel Prize of their day. Work with me. Um, They were bringing good news of great joy. And no doubt, in their minds, when the news hit the Jerusalem press, it would ripple throughout the whole land of Israel. So they made arrangements, they got ready, and they left. It would take about three to six months to get to Jerusalem from where they were. So they get everything ready, and they make their trip. Driven by the hope of seeing the great king and by the hope that that star was real that they saw that they don't see now. And after immense of travel, they arrive at their destination and they look up at the city of Jerusalem as they're coming into that city. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but as you come down the way and you look at the city, they saw the city and there they see the temple of Jerusalem, the temple of the people of Israel, this golden shell on top of it, gleaming brightly in the sun. Like a golden jewel. And as they make their way there, they're distinguished visitors. Again, remember, they're, they're the PhDs of their day. They're, they're people of great, extraordinary um, uh, intelligence and, and, and of renown. And so they come in and, and they, they say, we want to meet with the, with the king of the people of Israel and with their priests and their leaders. And then, so they say, well, the king here right now is Herod. Even though he's not a Jew, he kind of rules over the Jews. So they bring him to Herod. And Herod meets with them and they tell Herod about it. And Herod seems really interested. And he he says, well, here, I think I can answer this question. So he brings all the wise, learned men. The priests come before him and they they ask him. Balthazar says, and he explains the whole thing and puts it all out there. And they said, the only thing we don't know is where will this king be born? We don't have those records. And they said, well, of course you don't, because it came from a guy named Micah. And he was probably, you know, probably have his books. But let me tell you, we know exactly where the king will be born. The king will be born in Bethlehem. And they go, that's, they're excited about it. 
But they're kind of taken back because these people who should be excited about it aren't really that excited. They're more disturbed. Except for Herod. So they go back to their um, Marriott Resort and spend the night and they get a little message on their message machine that says that uh, Herod wants to meet with them. Because Herod's the interested one. So they meet with Herod. They sit down with Herod and Herod goes, you know, I'm really intrigued about this whole thing. This is, you know, I'm a king and I want to I want to receive this king with all kinds of joy and acceptance. And I want to lavish my my own worship upon this new king that you've told me about. When exactly was the sign that you saw? When did you see the star? And they tell him. And he says, you know, when you go visit them, go, go visit the king. And when you meet with him and you find where he is, come back to me. Let me know so I can also worship him. Well, now you know the rest of the story, right? They go, they visit the child, they see the child. It says that they're in the home of Mary because at this point they're no longer in a stable. At some point, Mary was saying, come on, Joseph, get us a home. I think the child could be anywhere from, who knows, a month, three months, or who, we don't know what age. And we know that Herod's in his mind thinking through this whole thing, wanting to know when it starts, because he's thinking to myself, well, look, at if they came down three months and then nine months, months ago, they saw the star. What's just in his mind? If he has to, I'll kill all the babies about two years of age around Bethlehem, right? And they come and they bring their gifts, whether it's three or ten or an entourage. They pour these three gifts before the king and they pour his feet and before Mary and they worship the one their hearts have been longing for. But you know what's kind of interesting is they were leaving the city that day. This is what the scripture has to say. It says that as they were leaving, the Amplified Bible puts it this way, when they had listened to the king and they went their way and behold, the star which had been seen in the east and its rising went before them until it came to stood over the place where the young child was. Then it says, when they saw the star, they were thrilled with ecstatic joy. I think what happened was they came back out and God spoke to them to go towards Bethlehem. They saw the star. They were filled with ecstatic joy because that which they hadn't seen, which they had hoped was there, was there once more, led them right to where Jesus was. And I'm right to where Jesus was. Someone asked me in the first service, I just kind of paid attention to this whole thing. I was wondering, where in the world are you going? Right here. John 6, 44. No one comes to me, says Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws them. What I love about this, as I studied this, and I, I, I just get so excited about God's word. I love his word. It's so true. And as you study it, the parts start to fit together. And it's not some strange story way out there. But you see how God pulled this whole thing together. He takes three guys who are living in the city of Sippar, probably, where they are seeking in their hearts, thinking there's this God who would reveal himself to his people, believing the promises that they had heard possibly through Daniel. And now the whole school seems to move towards a scientific kind of modernistic bend. They still hold on to faith. They still think maybe this God could be. And these seeking hearts are looking into the stars. And God, out of incredible love, 
goes to a place in Babylon. Babylon was not the place you would find God. Babylon was the farthest from God. It was the place of sin and wickedness. It was the place that was described in Revelation, which will be the great beast that will come and will be the one who will stand against the ways of God. In Babylon, God goes to a place where these people who shouldn't know God, who seem far from God, who are seeking for God, because anyone who seeks and looks to God will be drawn to Him. Praise God. Isn't that wonderful? There are people around you. There are people here today possibly seeking after God, wanting to know God. And here's what's so wonderful about our God. He doesn't leave us unto ourselves. When He draws us, He actually uses signs to guide us. How incredible that this God would take these people and all that was occurring in their land from years past. And this God who meticulously weaves this story together, this incredible story, that someday we'll actually hear their testimony and really hear the rest of the story. But he weaves this story together in order to reach these three people and he uses a star, a physical sign to guide them. It's so cool. I had a, an individual this week come into my office who's been coming to the church for three, four months and this young mother, wonderful lady, is just sharing with me what God's been doing in her life. And she said, I haven't been in church since I was, um, when I went to confirmation years ago. And I've been so afraid of the church. She said, I came here about three, four months ago. I walked through the doors. And when I walked through the doors, something in my spirit just felt right. And I said, in my heart, that's God drawing. And then she went on to say that when I walk through the doors and I hear the music, I just start to cry. I feel moved. And I just said, that's God at work. Friends, we are people who have been given a God that we are in a personal relationship through Jesus Christ who gives us His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit works in us in ways that we can't understand. And He draws us, those who are seeking Him. And He uses signs. He uses our emotions. He uses people. You may be assigned to someone of hope. You may be a star guiding someone to God this year. Some of you are here and you're wondering, and maybe you've been coming for the last few weeks, or maybe for a few months, or maybe for a year, and you've been wondering because you've been seeing God at work in ways around you, but you don't even know what to call it. You can't even call it God. It's the Holy Spirit because He loves you so much. He would go to any end of the earth. He would go into the Babylon, the darkest, deepest prison, and reach out for you because He wants a relationship with you. He loves you that much. It's so wonderful as I met with this lady and and shared with her about God's love and, and asked, is there anything that is between you, any, anything that causes shame, any kind of sin, anything you've done? And she said, yes, she, there was. And she just shared and confessed and prayed and, and received the great love of God into her heart. And I want to tell you the greatest gift you can get at Christmas is to be a person who begins to pay attention to the work of God around you and begins to ask people and understand that this is God's work. Then it's for you. And he's drawing you because he wants you. To be the greatest gift that he could receive this Christmas. He wants you. He wants you to be a gift. But Jesus wrapped inside you to someone else. This is what our life is about, folks. It's what your story is about. 
This is what the story I pray about why Zeta Free is about. It's about a group of people, individually and collectively, who see themselves coming not just to worship and to put on programs, but see ourselves as people who are in touch with the Word of God, in touch with the Spirit of God, so that we move by His impulse, so that we become signs, and we become a part of the work of the Spirit in lives of others around us. One verse I love is found in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord, they range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. In this school, some 2,000 years ago, the eyes of God was sweeping through the land. And he sees the hearts of some wise men who believe more than just science, but believe there's a God who wants to reveal himself to them in some way. And his eyes are ranging, looking for those who will commit themselves to him. Folks, it's not about you. It's not about how much you can work. It's about the idea, I just open myself to you and to your grace and to the movement of your work in my life. We we need to get out of the game of thinking that if we can do enough and and we just abide by the rules correctly, we're going to be accepted. Move away from that. When you have a heart full of love and God meets you, you want to fulfill the word of God. You want to fulfill the law of God in your life. And it's a journey that over time God begins to move and to take and heal the parts of your life so that your full life can be given over to him in a way that becomes this treasure of joy. So that when you hand yourself like those wise men did to the feet of Mary at the birth of this child. You, in a sense, give yourself fully to him. This is the story of Christmas. It's all about hope. It's about a God who would enter into history because he knew he knew there was something that he could do in your life if you would just commit it to him. Years ago, I read about a teacher who had been assigned to instruct a horribly burned young boy in a burn unit in the hospital. When the teacher entered the boy's hospital room, she was unprepared for the pitiful sight. She stammered, I'm the hospital teacher and I've been sent, she says to this young boy, all burnt, and I've been sent to help you with nouns and adverbs. She just felt horrible. She felt like, you know, what am I doing? This boy, it's the shape he's in. Well, the next morning she shows up to work to come to meet with some of the students to meet specifically with this boy. And one of the nurses in the burn unit runs up there and asks her, what in the world did you do to that young boy? And she begins to just profusely share her her, her, her embarrassment and apologies for not being more collective. And, when, you know, she's thinking all these things. And, and the lady, the nurse interrupts her and says, you don't understand We've been worried about this young boy, but ever since you were here yesterday, his entire attitude has changed. He's filled with hope. He's fighting back and responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. (laughs) She was like, taken back, didn't quite understand, worked with the boy, found out later, the boy told her and the nurse that he had completely given up hope until he saw the teacher and he explained it this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? God would not send his son to teach us how to live and to walk and to know him if, if there wasn't hope. 
Here's the big thing. It's not about how much you believe in him, folks. It's the fact that he believes in you. If you're just willing to open your heart to him. Let's pray. Father, there are people here this morning who I believe are in a place where they're ready to say, my shame, my sin, whatever is in the way, I just give myself to you and I trust that your eyes are locking on my heart right now. If that's where you're at, just confess your need of him. Confess the fact that your sin has separated you from him and just open your heart to receive him as your Lord and your Savior. Jesus wants to personally walk and live with you. And there's some of you, I just want you to recognize that this week and in the years to come, you are like a star that God has placed out there to guide someone to know him. I'm just going to encourage you. Be more caught up in the love of God than trying to tell them about some rules. Be more caught up about how God loves you and let that love and understanding pour through your life so that the word can eventually be said. Be a sign, would you? In Christ's name, amen.